Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of the Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. And I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. We're here today with a political science professor at Biola University, Dr. Scott Waller. Uh, Scott also serves as the, the chair of Biola University's Religious Freedom Task Force to talk about a couple of cases that were handed down, one in Canada and one in the United States, uh, in, in late spring, early summer of 2018. Scott, I think it's fair to say that there's, there is, this is a good news, bad news uh, type of situation with these two cases. So let's take, let's take the good news first, uh, what's commonly known as the NIFLA case, short for the National Institutes of Family Life Advocacy, a uh, case to, that was, was filed here in California, decided uh, in June of 2018 by the United States Supreme Court. Tell our listeners first, what was this case about and what specifically were, what was NIFLA challenging uh, about the law in California? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, was uh, uh, this case involved a legal challenge to a piece of legislation that was passed by the California legislature called the California Reproductive Freedom Accountability Comprehensive Care and Transparency Act. So since that's too long to uh, say, Could you make pronounce, that title a little longer? <laughs> yeah, it's actually shortened called the FACT Act. And uh, the acronym... Uh, is an attempt to capture with the intent of, or at least the uh, purported attempt to the uh, intent of this bill. Uh, the act was an attempt to regulate pro-life pregnancy centers by by forcing these licensed clinics to notify their female clients of what the state called a full range of free and low-cost services that the state of California offered. And most controversially about this case, and the reason the, su- the suit was brought on it, that, that these pro-life centers would uh, paradoxically and ironically, and, and, and in their view, uh, uh, not to their proclivities, these pro-life centers would have to notify their female clients and advertise abortion services, which is the very services these clinics had a moral objection to in the first place. So the suit was brought when you know several clinics brought suit against the state of California claiming that su- such regulation uh, violated their First Amendment free speech rights. And under the free speech rights in this in the First Amendment, we have what's called freedom association, that we're free to associate or not associate with a certain message. And the claim was, by these pro-life clinics, was that they were being forced to associate with a message that they didn't agree with. And the lower courts, prior to the U.S. Supreme Court, actually ruled against these clinics. And it gets a little wonky here, but it's an important point. These clin- They ruled against these clinics, ruling that since the speech involved here was in a professional context it didn't enjoy the full protections of the First Amendment. And that, that's, that is a little bit of a wonky point, but it's a key point. So the rub of the case is whether the coercive power of the state could be used to compel speech, albeit within a professional context, that someone or a group of people in these clinics disagreed with. And so it raised the question of whether individual speech, even in a professional setting, could be impinged upon, could be impinged upon constitutionally. And so it raised the question, could these pro-life clinics be compelled to advertise for abortion services, which was the very practices that these clinics were devoted to opposing? So in, so in essence, the, the, the law was requiring these crisis pregnancy centers and pro-life clinics to 
basically say say things that they had a moral and in some cases a religious objection to. That's correct. And 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 though though the case was uh, largely centered around uh, free speech rights, which was a, which is an element of the First Amendment. Um, there was special cognizance taken of the fact that that the majority of these voices that were implicated by the FACT Act were in fact religious voices, and several of the uh, uh, one judge, and particularly Justice Kennedy, took particular cognizance of that. So, so b- both the right of free expression and religious liberty were at stake in this case. Uh, definitely. Uh, the, the right of free speech was uh, on the forefront and on the back burner, particularly in the concurring opinion. Justice Kennedy uh, made careful note that the, and even Justice Thomas in his majority opinion, took very careful cognizance of a kind of curious spectrum of places that would be uh, implicated by this fact act, and they all seem to be religiously motivated pro-life uh, crisis pregnancy centers. Okay, so Scott, what, what was the court's decision? And what summarized their rationale for our listeners? Sure. Well, the first thing to point out was the decision was a narrow 5-4 decision. A victory is a victory, but of course, uh, a 5-4 decision is as narrow as it gets. And as I'm one to tell people, and I repeat this, our former president, Barack Obama, was fond of saying this, elections have consequences. And it's likely that if Neil Gorsuch, uh, President Trump's uh, uh, placement on the court had not been on the court and instead a nominee of uh, Mrs. Clinton, Hillary Clinton's liking, the case likely would have been a 5-4 decision in the other direction. But that said, um, the court in a narrow 5-4 ruling ruled that the FACT Act, which required pro-life clinics to disseminate information about abortion, abortion services, did in fact violate their First Amendment freedoms. Uh, the court ruled that it was an unconstitutional, what's called content-based form of regulation, uh, it, uh, on speech, which compelled these clinics to speak a particular message. And the court raises this question, how could these clinics be expected to exercise their free speech rights to try to dissuade women to have abortions while at the same time being required to inform them about abortion services? And the fact that the speech was labeled professional speech didn't save the regulation. In fact, what might be more good news coming from this case was that Justice Thomas uh, was very careful in his um, opinion, and his words and his uh, uh, his his ruling regarding professional speech and the protections that the high courts believed it had were higher than what the state of California was claiming. Here's Justice Thomas on this. But this court has not recognized professional speech as a separate category of speech. Speech is not unprotected merely because it is uttered by professionals. This court has been reluctant to mark off new categories of speech for diminished constitutional protection. The dangers associated with content-based regulation of speech are also present in the context of professional speech. As with other kinds of speech, regulating the context of professional speech uh, poses the inherent risk that government seeks not to advance a legitimate regulatory goal, but merely to suppress unpopular ideas. So Thomas was really on to something here in terms of his pushback against the state of California's claim that professional speech could be regulated differently than individual speech. And he was worried that if the FACT Act was left to stand, then the government would be free to regulate unpopular ideas simply by demanding a state licensing requirement and putting the speech in the category of professional speech. That's a very welcome and important uh, decision, a statement for him to make for the sake of free speech in our country. 
let me ask you this question. One of the dissenting uh, opinions was people in favor of pro-choice, such as Planned Parenthood or whatever, will recommend adoption. So out of equality, why shouldn't pregnancy resources be forced to at least recommend abortion? They made an argument for equality from that. What would your pushback on that be? Well, I think the pushback would be that uh, perhaps there's no moral or religious objection, uh, a freedom of conscience, that these uh, uh, pro-abortion services would would have to uh, to advertise for for adoption. But the analogy is not good because on the flip side, these pro-life pregnancy centers, largely motivated by in many cases, religious impetuses do in fact have protections of, of the First Amendment, namely the free exercise of religion. And the Constitution particularly protects that right, whereas it doesn't protect uh, other rights. Uh, perhaps the uh, uh, pro-abortion services people might have uh, moral qualms of some sort about offering adoption services, but they're not generated out of religion. That's a great distinction because by definition, pro-choice means you should be in favor of a woman having the right to choose or not choose. But pro-life, right. you believe deeply in the sanctity of life. Now, that's why your response is why it surprised me that the decision was five to four. Some decisions I understand that people disagree with, it felt to me like this should have been nine to zero. I'm curious, what do you make of the fact that it was so close, either just legally or morally, or where we're at in our culture, that this decision was merely five to four? I think the answer to that, Sean, is the fact that there are four justices on the Supreme Court that reveal that they are so committed to the abortion enterprise and, and, its, and its protection that they're willing to sacrifice free speech rights in order to uh, have those services, if you wanted to call it that, um, um, be unfettered in, in places like the state of California. So it, it was really revealing that, that this service, if you want to call it is such a germane name, um, this service is so sacrosanct in the minds of these liberal justices on the court that they would be willing to sacrifice and intrude upon the free speech rights of, of organizations or individuals to make sure that right goes forward in an unfettered sense. There doesn't seem to be in the minds of these peoples any kind of moral distinction or moral problems um, to this practice. It's, it's almost akin, I think, in their minds to having a moral objection to one having an appendectomy. What's the problem? Uh, why, why should we fetter people's liberty choices in any kind of way? And this played into this case, I believe. Scott, uh a lot of folks have suggested that this decision might have pretty far-reaching implications for other cases that come up in the future that have to do with religious freedom and free expression. Uh, how do you think this decision will impact other religious freedom, free expression cases that will come up in the future? Well, you, you raised some important uh, points with the, the with those questions here. Um, you're right, and the ruling in this case uh, um, was on the correct understanding of the constitutional protections of speech and association. And Justice Thomas, as I said, took careful cognizance of the fact that pro-life pregnancy centers seem to be the target of this reg regulation and that many of these pro-life pregnancy centers were Christian belief-based ones. In fact, he noted that the FACT Act covered a, quote, curiously narrow set of speakers. In other words, it seemed targeted 
um, toward them. So in this way, given the religiously motivated origins of these clinics, Justice Thomas found it troubling and implied that a reasonable person can conclude that these clinics were specifically targeted because of their religious motivations. So had this decision gone the other way, it would seem to imply that the state was free to target and regulate a view on an issue that the state simply found objectionable, even if that view was generated out of the free exercise of religion. And Justice Kennedy, to your point, uh, in his concurring opinion, was particularly interested in pointing out that the FACT Act was a form of viewpoint discrimination, something that he thought was a matter of really serious constitutional concern because it seemed to uh, be particularly targeting a religious voice in the state that while, while it was made not perhaps the preferred message or the state endorsed, state endorsed message, it still deserved constitutional protections nonetheless. And so Kennedy's rather short opinion may be, in hindsight, the, or his concurring opinion, his short opinion may be um, what's, what scholars are pointing to in the future uh, in terms of this. He says, this law is a paradigmatic example of the serious that presented when government seeks to impose its own message in the place of individual speech, thought, and expression. For here, the state requires primarily pro-life pregnancy centers to promote the state's own preferred message advertising abortions, and this compels individuals to contradict their most deeply held religious beliefs, grounded in basic philosophical, ethical, or religious precepts. All of the history of the Act's passage and its under-inclusive application suggests the real possibility that these individuals were targeted because of their beliefs. And that's really getting back to Sean's question in terms of why the analogy that, that the state state made was not a good analogy because these pro-life pregnancy centers have a have a special measure of protection that the founders instilled in the First Amendment. So, Scott, in your view, is this as good a news for religious freedom and free expression as it appears to be? Uh, it very well could be. Uh, in fact, uh, and and this sort of implicates the other case that we're talking about, the the Trinity Law School case. In the aftermath of this case, uh, legal analysts, largely in, uh, who were uh, saw this decision in a favorable light, in the aftermath of the NIFLA case, have been quick to camp on Justice Thomas's words about this professional speech stuff. In fact, um, when you read the case closely and you look at the language in the case law that Thomas cites, it seems that he may have had some con- other kind of kind of contemporary legislation in mind that's making its way through various states uh, in terms of sexual orientation change laws. Uh, The Sochi laws, as they're called, have been passed in various states, and they've been passed under consumer fraud or consumer protection, and and putting them, therefore, uh, not only in the classification of professional speech, which we've already covered that terrain where Justice Thomas spoke to that, but lower courts have been asserting that since it was professional speech, it doesn't enjoy the full protections of the First Amendment. Thomas takes that on squarely and rejects it out of hand. That might be the most favorable thing um, in terms of this case. So if NIFLA was good news, some people are arguing that there's more good news to follow in that regard. That's actually, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Very, I think our listeners will find that to be pretty encouraging news. But now to the bad news on this from our neighbors to the north. Um, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled very differently in the case against Trinity Western Law School. 
they lost its case for accreditation, sued, and the Supreme Court of Canada ruled against them. Uh, what was their case about, and how was the court's ruling different? Well, um, as good a news as the combination of NIFLA, uh, the case, and the other case that, that came down this summer that, that implicated uh, uh, religious freedom, the Masterpiece Cake Shop was, for us, the Trinity Western Law School case was as bad a news uh, for our Canadian brothers and sisters. Uh, this case involved Trinity Western uh, University, a Christian liberal arts university, one of the very few private schools in, in the nation of Canada, and they were seeking to open a law school. And by the way, this university, a, a very distinguished institution, consistently ranked amongst the top two universities in Canada for exceptional experience by the National Survey of Student Engagement, is the only university in Canada to achieve an A-plus rating in terms of the quality of education over the last seven years. Um, and this, too, this case was about associational rights. Uh, Trinity Western was one of the few private universities in this country, and they operate under what many religious institutions of higher learning operate under, uh, a kind of community covenant. And, and this community covenant in, that was so controversial was that students and staff and faculty um, commit themselves under this covenant to refrain from sex outside of traditional marriage context. Um, do And so it raised this question in this case, do Christians in Canada have associational rights to come together and run their organization the way they want to? So students at this law school would have had, if this law school had been opened, um, would have had to abide by the university's community covenant regarding sexuality. It required students to abstain, quote, from sexual intimacy that violates the sacredness of marriage between a man and a woman. And at issue here was the fact that two law societies in British Columbia and Ontario denied this proposed law school any opportunity for accreditation because Trinity Western required that community covenant. And that's what generated the lawsuit. I'm curious what you make of the 7-2 ruling. I was surprised at the 5-4 ruling in NIFLA. But then when I saw this case in Canada, I thought, wow, two people on the highest Supreme Court would be willing to defend the rights of a law school to operate according to its deepest convictions. What do you make culturally or legally or just from a societal perspective from a 7-2 ruling for where Canada is and where the U.S. may be in the future? Well, um, the 7-2 decision um, hit the Canadians like a, a sledgehammer. It was, I mean, uh, a 5-4 decision in, in, in a direction, you know, I guess one could would uh, salve your wounds by saying, well, we were close. But a 7-2 decision represents a kind of overwhelming view against um, uh, religious free exercise in the, in the nation of Canada. So it, it has hit in the Canadians particularly hard, and it really does set a kind of legal trajectory in the state that that doesn't bode well um, for those who are who are seeking to live out the dictates of their faith in a public kind of way in Canada. Um, the court cases that came down this summer in in the U.S. represented perhaps so it's too early to tell um, a kind of check on some things that, that there was a kind of legal trajectory that had started in this country as, as early as the late eighties, early 1990s. And we've been on a kind of legal trajectory in which there's been a collision course between, um, 
newfound sexual liberties and 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 uh, rights associated around uh, particularly homosexuality and gay marriage and this kind of thing, and what seemed to be on a collision course with religious free exercise rights. It could be that the cases in the United States um, represent a kind of um, attempt by the court to sort of balance these competing interests between sexual liberties and religious liberties. The Trinity Western case represents a kind of overwhelming defeat um, for religious liberty in, in Canada. Can you mention the rationale of this ruling and maybe how it compared and contrasted with the NIFLA ruling in the States? Sure. Um, well, like the NIFLA case, this Canadian case was about the freedom of association. But since the school was overtly religious, free exercise rights of Canadians were even more and, and clearly in the spotlight in this case. So in both cases, religious organizations were implicated. But unlike the NIFLA case here, in, in which the U.S. Supreme Court was particularly worried about the intentional targeting of the religious voice, the Canadian Supreme Court was less bothered by that fact. Uh, the Canadian court ruled against the school, arguing that within the balance of interest and rights in play here, there were more fundamental and important rights to be considered than religious freedom rights of Trinity Western. So in the 7-2 decision, not surprisingly, these two lone dissenters focused on religious freedom. The majority focused on what they called equality of rights, and, e and that is code for equality of outcome. And the majority spoke on, on, on the issue of harm. To not allow students, argued the majority, to live out their gay lifestyle would cause harm to their dignity. And that's a key word in this uh, judicial discussion. It would cause harm to their dignity as human beings. And ironically, this is a similar movement that Justice Kennedy over the past 20 years has been making in regards to references to human dignity. And so in this site, for the Canadian court to embrace uh, th this kind of language of dignity law represents a serious shift in the Canadian court to be uh, seeing itself as, a, as an instrument of uh, broad social reform. So equality rights, what the, what the court called charter rights, they argued those actually trump religious free exercise rights in Canada when religious is held out in a, in a public kind of way. And sadly, this case represents a complete reversal of a decision from about 20 years ago in which the Supreme Court ruled that Trinity Western could actually start a school of education um, with similar commitments to community standards. So this uh, legal trajectory does not bode well for Canadians. Scott, in the Obergefell case, Kennedy, who wrote the majority opinion legalizing same-sex marriage across the United States, he did say that well-meaning people might differ on this issue. And a lot of people, myself including, said, well, that makes it at least different to a degree from issues of race because nobody would write in a Supreme Court ruling and say, yeah, it's okay to be a racist. And I thought he's kind of throwing a bone that there might be a reversal or at least a balancing out of this kind of movement and the trajectory you've described has been taking place since the 80s and 90s. Was there any kind of bone thrown in the Canadian rule where it's essentially – or is essentially the idea that all holds barred is kind of out on religion, and this can be taken even further towards churches and businesses and beyond? Um, 
not that I'm aware of. Um, uh, the 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 paragraph that you refer to in the in the Obergefell decision at the time was taken as a as a very small bone for a couple of reasons. One, it was only one paragraph in a in a case that that was obviously a landmark case legalizing uh, gay marriage uh, for the first time in in American history. Um, the the only reason the other reason it was seen as a as a small bone was that. Uh, um, the, the kind of language that Kennedy imposed there uh, said that, that people are free to advocate and teach, but it didn't say live out or freely publicly exercise their religious freedom. So uh, there was quite a bit of pause and, and concern in the aftermath. But again, perhaps um, the NIFLA case and, and Kennedy himself taking opportunity in a short but very pointed uh, concurring opinion uh, seemed to expound upon and uh, provide uh, guidance to lower courts uh, about religious free association rights. The Canadian court, on the other hand, um, actually went in the opposite direction. Uh, the, the court ruled that the community covenant um, would harm the dignity of LGBT student, law students, and that harm, they argued, would be concrete and, and measurable, while the harm imposed on religious liberty here was actually minimal. Um, and uh, more amazingly, the Canadian Supreme Court took it upon itself to decide what would be necessary for taking a law degree within a Christian context. It actually ruled that adhering to a covenant, common covenant regarding sexuality was not necessary. Uh, here's the court's language. A mandatory covenant is not absolutely required to study law in a Christian environment in which people follow certain religious rules of conduct. Or attending a Christian law school, while it may be preferred, is not necessary. So um, it's a pretty bleak picture when you start to look at the the details of that case up there. Scott, the last year, the Court of Appeals in British Columbia actually ruled in favor of the school, which seemed to be a pretty encouraging development. They, I'm paraphrasing the the language of the decision, but essentially they said in a pluralistic culture, you know, we we have to be we have to allow people to live out their deepest convictions. Um, on what basis did they rule in Trinity Western's favor? And this, is, this sounds like that the Supreme Court of Canada completely reversed that decision. No, that's right. Um, you know, talking with some constitutional experts up there in Canada this summer, I was assured that Canada has a long history of valuing and valuing and protecting religious free exercise rights as we do here in the United States. Um, it was in light of that constitutional history that those lower courts found that it was acceptable to have a covenant under religious um, under these religious freedom banners, um, and that it didn't violate the rights of LGBT students. Um, there's a the, the Canadian Constitution is constructed in a certain way uh, such that what what you would read first as you read down from say the top of the page is actually more fundamental and more important. And so the lower courts argued that uh, Section 2A of the, Con the Canadian Constitution enumerates the freedom of religion and that there's a fundamental freedom associated with this. And this court, these lower courts, came, uh, came to the conclusion that these were more fundamental rights than the so-called equality rights that the Canadian Supreme Court would point to. And therein lies um, the switch. Uh, the, the, the Supreme Court of Canada in short, ruled against Trinity Western because it argued that charter values 
understood as these equality of outcome rights trumped religious freedom. And Scott, I know you're you're familiar with this when your work with uh, Roe v. Wade and and those bioethical and legal issues associated with that, um, like the infamous Roe v. Wade case, which can't be understood in isolation, um, given the Doe v. Bolton case that came down at, on the same day. The same thing um, needs to be understood in light of Canada. Um, there there is a companion case that the Canadian Supreme Court recently ruled on, called the Wall case, and so. The Canadian Supreme Court is actually speaking with a broader voice than even the Trinity Western case. It has to be understood in context with the Wall decision. The Wall case was actually a good decision by the Canadian Supreme Court. It involved, I won't get into the details, but it involved a Jehovah's Witness who had some kind of internal altercation within his denomination. The internal denomination ruled against him, and he appealed outside the denomination for um, uh, uh, for to, for have his uh, have his case heard in in secular courts, and the Canadian Supreme Court essentially said that this is an in-house manner, and you will um, you will have to abide by the in-house uh, uh, decision to to regulate your own affairs. But the Trinity Western case demonstrates that if religious believers want to act in the public square, then the governing authorities can regulate your affairs. On internal issues, you do what you want. In the public, not so much. So the message seems clear in light of the the, the voice that these two courts these two court cases represent up there in Canada. Religion is a privatized issue. It's equated increasingly with the mere freedom of worship. But once religion is exercised in the public square, it's a different story. Hey Scott, let me ask you this last question. This has been so helpful and insightful, and we celebrate what's happened in the states, and we mourn this ruling in Canada. What can people listening just do about this? How can we make a difference, even if it's on a small scale? Well, certainly we can be praying. I mean, uh, there there have been amazing shifts in terms of legal trajectories on some issues that that uh, some of us could not have foreseen uh, even just a couple years ago. And um, though we don't place our hope in politics or the judiciary, ultimately. Um, we are called to pray for our rulers and pray for wisdom uh, that these that these people would see things and that God may may reveal things to them that that otherwise uh, they wouldn't. We certainly need uh, to pray for our Canadian brothers and sisters who, um, in light of this ruling, are pretty pretty doggone dejected. There, um, I've been speaking with some folks up there this summer, and and um, they could they could sure use a dose of encouragement up there in, in light of this. There's a kind of retrenchment. And and uh, stepping back to see sort of uh, um, what's next after this after this particular case, um, but Canadians have political rights. Uh, U.S. citizens have political rights, and I can assure you that the that the folks that I've talked to this summer are not uh, going to develop a kind of attitude where sticking their head in the sand. These these issues will be challenged and pushed, and and their hope and expectation is that the Canadian Supreme Court will um, see things in a different light. Scott, this has been really, really helpful. I thank you for coming on, for your clarity, for the conviction, but also just your your compassion for all the people affected by how religious liberty laws seem to be changing quickly and developing in directions we maybe wouldn't anticipate and even hope they would go. This has been excellent. Thank you, Dr. Scott Waller, uh, for coming on. We really appreciate your work. Well, it's been a delight, guys. I really enjoyed doing this. 
This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Professor Scott Waller, and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. That's biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening, and remember, think biblically about everything.